Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And today, we're going to talk about the epistle from last Sunday's um, Mass in the Extraordinary Form. That's the traditional Latin Mass. And uh, this Sunday's epistle was taken from St. Paul's famous passage in Ephesians 6 about putting on the armor of God. And we are going to take a look behind the obvious meaning of the biblical text and identify a practical suit of armor uh, that corresponds to St. Paul's metaphorical suit of armor. So a suit of armor the likes of which should be found in every Catholic home. So you're going to want to stay tuned for that. Also, we're going to be taking a closer look at forgiveness, both the forgiveness of sins by God and also the way that we forgive the sins of others, which is the topic of the gospel that started this week, which was the 21st Sunday in Pentecost, and that gospel, the parable of the unmerciful servant, which is taken from Matthew 18, verses 23 through 35. And we're going to be reading today, or using as our translation, the New Catholic Bible. So, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who decided to settle accounts with his servants. When he began the accounting, a man was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. Since he had no possible way to repay what he owed, his master ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and his children and all his property, to satisfy the debt. At this, the servant fell to his knees, saying, Be patient with me, and I will repay you in full. Moved with compassion, the master of that servant let him go and canceled the debt. However, When that servant left, he encountered one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. And choking him, he demanded, pay me back what you owe. His fellow servant fell to his knees and pleaded with him, saying, be patient with me and I will repay you. But he turned a deaf ear and had him thrown into prison until he repaid the debt. When his fellow servants observed what has happened, they were greatly upset And going to their master, they reported everything that had taken place. Then his master sent for the man and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you for your complete debt because you begged me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master handed him over to be tortured until he repaid the entire debt. In the same way, my heavenly Father will also deal with you, unless each of you forgives his brother from the heart. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, the meaning of this parable is pretty clear. It's about the infinite mercy of God towards uh, repentant sinners versus the hardness of man against, uh, you know, or, or towards his neighbor. The king, obviously, is God, and the servant who owed him 10,000 talents is the sinner. Now, since sin is an offense against the majesty of God, the sinner incurs an infinite debt, which he can never pay for himself, and for which he deserves eternal punishment. Now, this reality is is illustrated in the parable by the contrast of the amounts owed by the two servants. So, the denarius, for example, was a Roman coin made of silver and represented um, a day's pay in the ancient world. 
Now, a talent is a unit of measure, which uh, weighed somewhere between 75 and 100 pounds. So 10,000 talents of silver uh, that amount that the wicked servant owed to the king was an enormous sum. It's like something like 600,000 times more than the other servant owed to him. Now, we know if a sinner confesses uh, his sin, if he confesses his guilt, he has true contrition, prays for pardon, Almighty God, through the merits of Jesus Christ, will remit the whole overwhelming debt of that sin, as well as his eternal punishment. But uh, obviously the, the temporal punishment for sin is, still needs to be uh, uh, satisfied. And, and this forgiveness is on the condition that the sinner will uh, extend the same forgiveness to those who have injured him. So that second servant, who owed the first servant a hundred denarii, that represents somebody who has injured his fellow man, who has sinned against his brother, if you will. Now, when people hurt us, when people <clears throat> sin against us, there's a limit to that offense. But there isn't any limit to uh, the offense that we do to God when we sin. Because the gravity of sin depends upon the dignity of the one offended. So, for example, if I slap somebody in the face, certainly that's a, a pretty serious sin. But if I were to slap my father in the face, it would be much worse because of the dignity of the one offended. See, I I would add uh, a sin against the fourth commandment to my sin against the fifth commandment. But, But if the injured party, who is himself a sinner in the eyes of God, if he wishes to obtain from God's divine mercy pardon for his own infinite debt of sin, then it's only fair and just that he would show mercy and forgive the one who's injured him. And if we do not forgive, then we forget the many sins that God has forgiven us, and we also forget the debt that we owe to him. So for an injured party to refuse forgiveness is to prove himself unforgiving and uh, uh, revengeful, like like in the parable, um, uh, the fellow servants, right? And so for us, that would be the angels and the saints, were filled with holy indignation. They accuse him before God. And God will not forgive him his debt, but thrust him into hell. Now, although, of course, if you're truly repentant, we can be forgiven of that debt of eternal punishment, but we still have to pay the debt of temporal punishment in purgatory. That's why Jesus says, the master handed him over to be tortured until he repaid the entire debt. See, in another place... um, Jesus compares purgatory to debtor's prison. Because in the ancient world, uh, if you couldn't pay your debts, you were thrown in prison. And then your friends or family would pay your debt off, and and then they would let you out. And, of course, we can allude from uh, today's gospel that this imprisonment was most unpleasant. The debtor being, in our Lord's words, handed over to be tortured until he repaid the debt. Um, In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Uh, in verses 23, starting in verse 23. Therefore, when offering your gift at the altar, if you should remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar and first go to be reconciled with your brother, then return and offer your gift. Right? This is why we we need to go to confession before you receive communion, if you have mortal sins. Uh, In verse 25, come to terms quickly with your opponent while you are on the way to court with him. If you fail to do so, he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge will put you in the custody of the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Believe the truth of what I tell you, you will not be given your freedom 
until you have paid your debt down to the last penny. Again, the words of our Lord. And you notice here, he's not talking about the, a silver denarius, which was a day's pay, but, but a copper penny, which is the very smallest uh, of Roman coins. And why? Well, because we know from Revelation twenty-one twenty-seven that nothing unclean shall enter heaven. But the message of the parable here, the message for us especially, is one of uh, forgiveness, the importance of forgiveness, the importance uh, that you and I would forgive those who have trespassed against us, as we say in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Father Al Lauer was a uh, um, uh, priest, God rest his soul. He's, he's passed away a few years ago. But he used to say, when I was first ordained a priest, I believed that over 50% of all problems were due to unforgiveness. Then he says, after 10 years in ministry, I revised my estimate and maintained 75 to 80% of all problems, health, marital, family, and financial problems came from unforgiveness. And then he said, after more than 20 years in ministry, I concluded that over 90% of all problems are rooted in unforgiveness. Now, Father Lauer, he was a charismatic priest. He was the uh, founder of Presentation Ministries, and he literally wrote the book on forgiveness. And I'm, no, I'm serious. He, he wrote a book called The Book of Forgiveness, <laughs> okay? Or The Book on Forgiveness. He literally wrote The Book on Forgiveness. Um, now, later in the program, we're going to take a closer look uh, at the 10th article of the Apostles' Creed, which is The Forgiveness of Sins just uh, how it is that God forgives our sins, how we are to forgive one another. But, uh, but before we can understand what forgiveness is, I think we really need to understand what forgiveness is not. Uh, because many people have a false idea about forgiveness. First off, forgiveness is not ignoring or excusing other people's sins. Uh, in fact, the truth is that the more we forgive, um, the more we love the sinner— the more we hate the sin. Also, forgiveness does not mean uh, being a doormat. There are plenty of folks out there that don't think they need our forgiveness, and therefore they don't want it. They, they'd be insulted by it. It's like, you, you forgive me? You know, you don't, you don't need to, I don't need to be forgiven here, pal. I haven't done anything to be forgiven for. It's not about me. Okay? Um, and so forgiveness also... Uh, doesn't mean suffering further abuse. You know, sometimes prudence demands that, uh, that you get away from someone who has sinned against you because, you know, they would continue to be abusive or even dangerous, you know, uh, uh, maybe for your own sake or even for the sake of your, of your family, the sake of your children. So that means sometimes you may de- need to forgive someone uh, who you, whom you should not or cannot be in contact with, even someone who has passed away. Uh, uh, so if you can't be reconciled, right, because you can't have contact, you must still forgive and forgive from the heart. That means to forgive sincerely. See, because the point is that forgiveness is not optional for the Christian. And our good Lord wouldn't require it from us if it wasn't for our ultimate good. Uh, John Paul II said, forgiveness is the restoration of freedom to oneself, the key to our prison cell is in our own hands. So forgiveness is good for the forgiver as well as the forgiven, and that's no nonsense. All right, back with the armor of God and lots more right after these messages. 
Welcome back to uh, No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Version Most Powerful Radio. Every Catholic, that includes you and me, has family and friends that have fallen away from the faith. And in my experience, that's uh, usually not a matter of doc- uh, a doctrine. It's a matter of, um, well, typically some moral issue or perhaps some personal offense, real or imagined. And so shortly after the turn of the century, I pursued a certificate in Christian counseling in order to gain some insight into human nature, you know, in hopes of becoming a better evangelist and a better apologist. And that required, of course, uh, studying psychology. And the modern psychologists tell us that we are a nation of addicts, that we are not just alcoholics, but sexaholics, and workaholics, and shopaholics, and foodaholics, and rageaholics. And we're on to our second or third generation of couch potatoes that are hopelessly addicted to television and the internet. St. Thomas Aquinas said that joy is indispensable, but if you're deprived of true spiritual joys, you will instead become addicted to carnal pleasures. And and that, they tell us, is is the situation that we are in. And these this list, by the way, it sounds very familiar, uh, or if it sounds familiar, it should, because... We're talking about pride and avarice, lust, anger, gluttony, envy, sloth. It's the seven deadly sins. And, and, and these are the real pandemic in our society. And so sin's a, a spiritual problem. And so it needs a spiritual solution. We're in a spiritual battle. That's, that's what St. Paul reminds us uh, in Ephesians 6, that our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but with the principalities, the powers, with the world rulers of this present darkness, and with the wicked spirits in high places. So he tells us, put on the armor of God, that you may be able to resist on the evil day, and having done everything, to hold your ground. We are in a spiritual battle, so our armor is spiritual. And that famous passage from Ephesians 10-17 through 17, uh, was the epistle of the traditional last Mass this uh, last Sunday. And in Ephesians six fourteen through 17, he says, So stand fast with your loins girded in truth, clothed with righteousness as a breastplate, and your feet shod in readiness for the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, hold faith as a shield to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, this passage speaks directly to the vocation of every Catholic, uh, lay and clergy. And this spiritual suit of armor, I think, represents um, a a compendium of the Catholic faith. Now, he begins by saying that you should gird your loins with the truth. Now, to gird literally means to encompass or to encircle um, the, the expression gird your loins means to prepare for action by, by putting on a belt, you know, putting on your sword belt, tying up your tunic, uh, to gird for battle. Okay. So we begin the spiritual battle then by surrounding ourselves, St. Paul says, with the truth. Gird yourself with the truth. And as Jesus said, I am come to give testimony to the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. He who hears my voice Right here's the truth, um, and and it also says as a bookend to this, it says that our feet are to be shod with readiness, readiness for the gospel. 
Um, uh, one translation says zeal, okay? Uh, but, but readiness. St. Peter says in, in his first epistle, uh, 1 Peter 3, 15, always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you a reason for your hope. Okay, so that's readiness for the gospel, to share the gospel. And so St. Paul says we're to take up this, this spiritual armor. So the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, and the sword of the Spirit. And each of these, I think, you know, can be understood as, as representing an important aspect of Catholic formation. All right? Every catechism, whether it's the Roman catechism or, or the old Baltimore catechism or the catechism of the Catholic Church, they're organized around what we call the four pillars of catechesis. So the creed, the commandments, the sacraments, and prayer. And these four pillars correspond to the armor of God. The shield, obviously faith. Hebrews uh, um, 11.6 says, Without faith we cannot please God. Right? You must know your faith to keep your faith. You have to know your faith to share your faith. You have to know your faith to defend your faith. Right? So it all starts there. And the chief truths of, of the faith are um, uh, found in the Apostles' Creed, which, of course, is the starting point of catechesis. So that's, that's pillar number one. Uh, next is the breastplate of righteousness. And what does a breastplate protect? Right? It protects your chest because it's, it's there to protect your heart. And, and righteousness comes from following the moral law, which is written on the heart, like St. Paul says in Romans. So the breastplate then represents the Ten Commandments and the theological and, and moral virtues. Okay, so that's the second pillar of catechesis. The helmet then represents salvation. And salvation comes to us through the merits that Christ won on the Holy Cross. And how do we, how do we encounter those graces? Well, through the sacraments and through prayer. And so that's pillars three and four. And then finally, we are admonished to take up the sword of the Spirit, the, the Word of God, the, the Holy Scriptures, which uh, St. Paul describes as sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, if St. Paul's spiritual armor represents the pillars of catechesis, how are we to take up our spiritual armor? Right? I have some suggestions. Okay, the shield is faith. Where do we learn the faith? That's what we've been talking about from, from the catechism. In the, in the midst of confusing times, in the midst of, of a multitude of opinions and contrasting voices, the catechism is a sure guide to faith. And I would you know, for me personally, especially the Roman catechism or, or the Baltimore catechism or, or the old penny catechism that they used to have in England, because all of those represent uh, or present rather an, an unambiguous presentation of the faith. They're very matter-of-fact, okay? Um, so the shield of faith, then, is, is the catechism. The helmet of salvation, how are we saved? Through the grace of God. And the graces won for us on the Holy Cross are communicated through the sacraments and through prayer, uh, which are perfectly united in every Holy Mass. But what if you can't get to, to daily Mass? Well, if you can't de attend daily Mass, you can still read the readings. You can still read the prayers. Um, it's the same with the Liturgy of the Hours, right? The, the Divine Office, the other official liturgical prayer of the Church. So to put on that helmet of salvation, you should have a missal or a breviary or a good Catholic prayer book. 
Uh, most Catholic prayer books have the ordinary of the Mass in them. Uh, and by the way, the daily texts of the Mass and the Liturgy of the Hours and, you know, a whole multitude of other Catholic prayers are available in apps. Uh, you know, our our uh, our own VMPR, the Virgin Most Powerful app, has a whole selection of prayers. Um, and I believe that you can, you can, you know, go to the USCCB website. That's the bishop's website, and they have the daily readings there. Um, also, there's uh, periodicals, for example, like Magnificat. And there's a new one called Benedictus. We had Eric Sammons uh, from Benedictus on the program uh, a few months ago talking about it before it was released. It's actually in publication now. Just got our, our uh, uh, second, I think, uh, um, edition of that, right? It comes out every month. And it had, it's like the Magnificat. It has prayers for every day. It's got the readings for the, for the traditional Mass every day. So I don't have a, a, a traditional Mass, a daily Mass that's available to me, so I can read the prayers right there. Okay, And, and most of this stuff is online for free, and so there's really no excuses. And, and after the Holy Liturgy, of course, and especially remember this in the month of October, the Holy Rosary. Right? That, that's, that's a prayer that you have with you all the time uh, and, and is always available to us. So, so that's the sacraments and prayer. That's the helmet of salvation. <clears throat> Pardon me. And then the breastplate of righteousness. We said before the breastplate represents the Ten Commandments and the theological and moral virtues and the commandments of the church, right? The precepts of the church. And we're instructed in virtue uh, by uh, spiritual works like the imitation of Christ and, uh, and the lives of the saints, for example. There's, of course, those are my favorites. There's a number of, of uh, um, classic spiritual works that might be efficacious for you. But when you look at those things, that spiritual reading, you can find practical advice. I mean, the imitation is just chock full of practical advice. I try and read a chapter every day. And then also in the lives of the saints, we can see examples of the gospel in action in the lives of people who are held up for our imitation, whose lives are are, are edifying. Uh, And so spiritual reading is the school of Christian perfection. That is how we become righteous. Right? And speaking of spiritual reading, of course, um, along with our defensive spiritual armor, we have our one offensive spiritual weapon, which is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and that's the Holy Bible. Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Commenting on that verse, Pope Benedict XVI said, It is necessary to take seriously the injunction uh, to consider the Word of God to be the indispensable weapon in the spiritual struggle. This will be effective and show results if we learn to listen to it and then to obey it. And then finally, St. Paul says we need to be shod in readiness for the gospel. I am a father of six, and uh, my kids are, most, are mostly grown now. I mean, the, the, the two oldest ones are out of the house and starting their own families. Got a couple in college and a couple in high school uh, that are still at home. But six kids, uh, years ago, when they were little, getting ready for Mass was exactly what you would think it would be like. And <laughs> every Sunday I would be, okay, you guys ready to go? Yes, Dad, we're ready to go. 
And then are you guys ready to go? You know, 10 minutes, five minutes. You say, okay, time to pile into the big white van and go to church. And, and what do I hear? A chorus of, oh, I don't have my shoes. I can't go with my shoes. And I'm telling you right now, as a dad, I learned the hard way that you are not ready until you have your shoes on. And that's what St. Paul says, be shod with readiness, right? Um, and it's what, uh, you know, that's ready to go out, ready for action, ready for battle. St. Peter said in 1 Peter 3, 15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you a reason for your hope. So in summary then, to know your faith, uh, you have to know your faith to keep your faith. Have to know your faith to share your faith. Have to know your faith to defend your faith. And the key is found in that spiritual armor that we take up when we take up the catechism, the missal, the breviary or Catholic prayer book, or the rosary, and the imitation of Christ and other spiritual reading. And of course, the sword of the spirit, the Holy Bible. All right, going to come back and talk about forgiveness, what the church teaches about God's forgiveness, and more when we return after these messages. Okay, welcome back to a No Nonsense Catholic. I'm going to talk about the 10th article of the Apostles' Creed, which is, I believe, in the forgiveness of sins. And what do we mean by that? Well, um, the church teaches, I'm sorry I'm a little out of breath, I had to hustle to uh, use the restroom during, during our two minutes off, and I'm a little out of breath. My uh, uh, knee, by the way, uh, is doing better. For those of you, I want to say thank you for those of you who have been praying for me. Uh, and uh, as you may notice, if you're watching on Rumble, I'm back in the uh, studio. I was able to uh, drive all the way up here today. And uh, it's a little taxing, but uh, I'm glad. But it uh, it made that walk to the restroom a little further than it uh, used to seem. <laughs> okay, so... The forgiveness of sins. Uh, when, we, when we talk about the forgiveness of sins, we're talking about the fact that God has given to the church, through Jesus Christ, the power to forgive sins, no matter how great the sins are, no matter how many, as long as a sinner is truly repentant. Now, in the old law, sins were forgiven, but they were forgiven through the merits of the Redeemer who was to come. And then now, of course, in the new law, they're forgiven through the merits of the Redeemer who has come. You remember when John the Baptist pointed out Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who takes away the sins of the world. So we can obtain forgiveness of our sins because Christ the Redeemer merited forgiveness for us by his death on the cross and, and has the power to remit sins. Uh, the church has the power to remit sins through the merits of Jesus Christ in whom we have our redemption, remission of sins, as St. Paul says in uh, Colossians. During his life, Jesus actually forgave sins to you know, specific individuals, Mary Magdalene, for example, and the good thief on the cross, um, the paralytic, yes, very, very powerfully, very uh, powerful symbolism. He forgave his sins, and people murmured at that, and, and he said, um, 
that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, paralytic, arise, take up thy mat, and go home. And he does. So Christ had the power to forgive sins, and he gave it to his apostles and disciples and their successors. He says in uh, John 20, in that first Easter, receive the Holy Spirit, he says to the apostles, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them, and whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. And that power to forgive sins wasn't given just to the apostles alone, uh, because obviously we need the forgiveness of sins as much today as people did back in apostolic times. Um, and, and therefore, that, that power must also remain in his successors, the successors of the apostles. And that, of course, is the bishops and the priests. Now, I, I mentioned the paralytic. Of course, uh, uh, Jesus' miracle was in response to the fact that uh, the enemies of Christ, um, like the enemies of the church, uh, pointed out the, the fact and the true fact that um, a, a man, a mere man, cannot forgive sins. And forgive in the sense of uh, the, the way that the church is talking about it. We're talking about um, um, remitting the, the offense to God, right? And I can't do, I mean, you can confess your sins to me and I'll, be, I'll, I'll tell you I forgive you, <laughs> but that's not going to absolve you from your sins, all right? This is something that only God can do. Uh, by our own power, we couldn't forgive any sins, even the smallest of sins. But through the power and, and the authority that, uh, that God gives them as ministers of God through the sacrament of holy orders, the priest can, acting in God's place, or acting, as we say, uh, in the place or the person of Christ. So, Or is God limited because man is sinful? Right? The, um, in 1 John, the evangelist says, These things I write to you in order that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the just. So from the very beginning, right, the first Easter Sunday, the church has exercised this power through the sacraments of, of baptism, through penance, and through the anointing of the sick, or extreme unction. All right? So... So how is it that sins are remitted or forgiven? They are forgiven by the various means that I just mentioned and according to the kind and the gravity of the sin. So by baptism, by penance, and by the anointing of the sick. So original sin, the, the sin that we are all born with, is remitted through baptism. When we're baptized, uh, we, we are... Um, freed from the state of sin, we, we become the children of God, we become the heirs of heaven. Uh, and, and none but the, the, the baptized, in one way or another, uh, are able to pass into the eternal kingdom. Uh, number two, actual sin is also remitted by baptism, as is the punishment due for uh, those sins. And then actual sins are remitted, you know, what happens after baptism? For sins that are committed after baptism, they are remitted in uh, confession, in the sacrament of penance, and also uh, extreme unction, which uh, has the, the penitential act as part of the uh, part of the sacrament. So, um, also, actual sin can be remitted by good works, by prayer and fasting and alms deeds. Right, the the, the classic triumvirate of of good works. Now, good works uh, are not sufficient to remit a mortal sin. Um, you know, uh, you, you have to seek uh, sacramental absolution 
or uh, or have you know really true contrition which we can't depend upon so seek absolution for the remission of mortal sin but good works will remit the you know uh, forgive the smaller sins also help you pay off the the debt of temporal punishment due for for all of your sins your forgiven sins and even for the person in a state of sin to perform good works you know prayer especially and uh, uh, alms deeds fasting these things will help to dispose uh, such a person to that state of mind that will help lead them to the sacrament of penance and that sacramental absolution that they're in need of. Um, and number three, the guilt of sins that are forgiven never returns. Let me think about this for a second. Once a sin is forgiven, it is forgiven forever. And if after our sins have, be, have been forgiven, we commit a new sin, or we, you know, repeat that sin, we commit the same kind of sin as the one that was already forgiven, we're guilty of new sins, right? So, for example, a man tells five lies. I goes to confession, I lied five times. He repents, he confesses his sin, he receives absolution. And after a month goes by, he's told another five lies. But he's guilty of, of only of those five lies, not ten, because the first five have been forgiven. All right, and as long as we're on the, the topic of sin, we should also talk about vice. We talk a lot on this program about virtue. Virtue is what is opposed to vice. Virtue is habitually doing what pleases God. Vice is habitually doing what displeases God. Vice is a habit of sin <clears throat> that's formed by repeated acts of sin. So if you make a practice of stealing, that's the vice of theft. Uh, somebody who habitually drinks until he's drunk, uh, is that's the, device, the vice of drunkenness. If you frequently sin against chastity, that is the vice of impurity, right? So if you if somebody commits a crime, a robbery, let's say, and never does it again, then he committed the mortal sin of robbery, but he doesn't have a vice, okay? Uh, um you, you, maybe you, you drink so much that you're completely intoxicated on one occasion, but you resolve never to do that again and, and stick to that resolution. So you're, you're guilty of having been drunk, but you're not guilty of the vice of drunkenness, okay? Now, the, the problem with vice is, unlike virtue, vices are easy to acquire. And, and that's one reason we have to be so very careful to try and avoid sin. You know, we avoid sin, we avoid the, the near occasions of sin, because if, if we should be so unfortunate as to fall into sin, we must at once cut off the, the possibility of forming uh, a vice, you know, through contrition, penance, resolution not to sin again, right? the firm purpose of amendment. Because after that first fall, one more readily yields to the next temptation, and each yielding weakens the will. And soon you're going to find yourself to be the slave of some vicious habit. Uh, it says in, in Ecclesiasticus 19.1, uh, he that participates in small things will fall little by little. Okay. Now, a vice, therefore, is it's easy to break off in the beginning, but it's more and more difficult, and then, and then very difficult when it's fully formed. But it, you need to know that at any vice, it's possible to overcome it with a resolute will and, of course, with the help of God's grace. Now, 
you know, it's easy enough to uproot a young tree, <laughs> you know, come along and pull it out. But when it's grown into a mighty oak, you know, uh, with the, the deep roots in the ground, it's extremely difficult. Vice having been fully formed uh, um, becomes a necessity, right? Like an addiction for, for the person. And it's, and it's really difficult to break without an extraordinary grace. So uh, this impossibility leads many uh, vicious persons to despair. And that is what leads to, to, to final impenitence. But we know that God can do all things. And so uh, the person that's contracted a habit of sin must have recourse to God. And God will strengthen him so that he can conquer that vice by patient acts of virtue, by a constant execution of the will, and by repeated recourse to the grace of the sacraments. And, and here's a final note. Every sin can be forgiven, no matter how great uh, it might be. I know that people, you know, we, we're, we're proud in our, in our sins. We're also proud in our contrition, I guess. Oh, God could never forgive me because the thing I've done is so terrible. But God is always ready to forgive sins, and he can forgive every sin. Like it says in the prophet Isaiah, if your sins be as scarlet, they will be made white as snow. Okay? No actual sin, though, can be forgiven without sorrow and repentance on the part of the sinner. So God forgives, but we participate in that forgiveness. And, you know, and uh, what, about the, what about the unforgivable sin? The sin against the Holy Spirit. What about that? Well, we'll talk about that and more. We'll talk about forgiveness amongst the members of the body of Christ when we return right after this here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold. Uh, thanks for being with us today, talking about God's forgiveness. And uh, I mentioned before the break that God can forgive every sin, that every sin, no matter how grave, can be absolved. But our good Lord Jesus said that the, there is a sin against the Holy Spirit that would not be forgiven in heaven or on earth either in this life or in the next. And uh, people, we refer to it as the unforgivable sin. Well, what is, what could this be? What could this unforgivable sin be? And the answer that the church gives us is what is called persistent or final impenitence. Uh, the sin of one who rejects conversion, who dies um, in a state of mortal sin, unrepentant mortal sin. And that tells us something about, about God's forgiveness, that you cannot obtain forgiveness from God without repentance. That God will not absolve you of your sins against your will. That you have to participate in that. Now, all of this, of course, flows from the two great commandments. That you love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second commandment, which is like it, our Lord says to love your neighbor as yourself. And so we're called to love and to forgive uh, not only our friends, but our enemies. Right? And I think that uh, we, we have limited time, and this is a big subject. So I'm going to start with the enemies, because I think that's the, that's the more... It's, it's, 
um, not that difficult to forgive your friends, but our enemies. What is an enemy? An enemy is someone who hates you, who's someone who seeks to do you harm. And, and forgiveness of, you know, love of neighbor uh, shown in forgiveness of your enemies, I think the great exemplar uh, is St. Stephen. He was the first Christian martyr. He gives us a striking example there in Acts 7 of, of love of enemy. He's being stoned to death. And he says, you know, he prays for the people who are stoning him, who, who, who obviously, uh, you know, instead of wishing them ill or, or hoping for revenge, he says, Lord, do not lay this sin against them. And, you know, one of the enemies of Christ who was standing there watching this happen was Saul of Tarsus. And Saul, as we know, you know, on the road to Damascus, a great persecutor of the church, Christ appeared to him and said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord, that I, that I am persecuting? And he says, I am Christ, whom, whom you persecute. Because he's persecuting the church, and the church is the body of Christ. <clears throat> so Saul of Tarsus, who was a great enemy of the church, because of his, you know, through his conversion, he becomes a friend of Christ and a great champion of the church. So Christ commands it. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute and calumniate you. If you do not forgive, and this is in Mark eleven twenty six, if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. So we must love our enemies for the same reason and in the same manner that we love our neighbor because our enemies uh, are our neighbor just as much as our friends are. And of course, Christ has given us the, the supreme example and, and our Heavenly Father gives us example as well. As, as our Lord says, he makes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust alike. And then Jesus, uh, uh, from the cross, prayed for his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So, you know, the, the person who loves his enemy for God's sake is like God. He's like the Father in heaven, whose sun shines on, on the, the just and the unjust. And he follows the example of Christ, who prayed and died for his enemies, as well as his friends. And then you become like the saints who always loved their enemies for the love of God. John 13, 15, our Lord says, For I have given you an example that as I have done to you, so you should do also. And uh, in John 3, He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life. You know, we ask God to forgive us in the Our Father. Naturally, this is something I think about every day. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We ask God to treat us the way we treat our enemies. If we don't forgive them, he won't forgive us. Matthew 6, 15, if you do not forgive men, neither will your Father for, will forgive you your offenses. I can't, it's pretty clear. I can't, you know, how could he be more clear than that? But the question is, how do we show love for our enemies? Uh, and, and there's a number of answers, like six different ways. Hopefully we can get to them all in, in the time we have left. Number one is you don't take revenge. Uh, when our Lord was reviled, he did not revile. Vengeance belongs to God, right? St. Paul says in Romans, Do not avenge yourselves, beloved, but give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
um, you know, there's in um, there was a Samaritan village in uh, Luke, right? They they wouldn't receive Jesus because he was a Jew, and the apostles got angry and they wanted to call down fire from heaven, right? But our Lord rebuked them, right? He says, "You you do not know what manner of spirit you are, right? You don't understand." Uh, the nature of the of the power of God that's being uh, going to be entrusted to you, he says. Him to him that strikes thee on the cheek, offer the other also. Okay, so we should return good for evil. This is number two, avenging ourselves in God's way by doing good to those that hate us. Uh, you know, if we do good to our enemy instead of avenging ourselves, pardon me, then we put him to shame, and and hopefully pacify him. Uh, Romans 12, 20, if your enemy is hungry, give him food. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For by so doing, you will heap coals of fire upon his head. Right? He would be ashamed. 1 Corinthians 4, 13, we are, when we are reviled, uh, or we are reviled and we bless. We are persecuted and we bear with it. Peter asked Jesus, how often should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times? And Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven times. And no, that doesn't mean 490 times. <laughs> it represents uh, uh, an unlimited number of times, as often as, as it's required. Uh, number three, if anyone offends us, but then asks our pardon, we should receive them kindly and not be unforgiving. Right? Unforgiveness is... Uh, the root of many of our problems, like Father Al Lauer said, you know, we mentioned in the first uh, segment. If we offend, and if we offend anybody, we should beg their pardon. Um, and you should do it immediately, if not sooner. In the book of Ephesians, where we just read about the armor of God, St. Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. What does that mean? Well, you know, we're never sure when we go to sleep at night if we're going to wake up in the morning. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take, Right? So <clears throat> we, we should always be at peace in conscience before we go to bed. That's why you should make an examination of conscience, pray the act of contrition, resolve, you know, to, to do better before you go uh, to sleep. Be at peace with everyone. Uh, and then when, number four, if we're seriously injured, you know, a matter of a property or, or your good name, your reputation, something like that, uh, you're not forbidden by the law of forgiveness to, to seek justice you know, to, to, to seek your rights in front of a court of law, for example, some, some lawful authority. And sometimes the, the virtue of justice uh, requires you to do that. And sometimes it's required to prevent further or even greater abuses, right? Forgiveness of enemies, that's why I was getting at the first segment, forgiveness of enemies doesn't require intimate association, especially to someone who doesn't want your forgiveness or, or continues to, to mean you harm. Right? It's enough that you forgive. Okay? Forgiving isn't, isn't uh, excusing what they've done. It's, it's freeing yourself from holding their sin against them. Does that make sense? When you forgive, you free yourself of the burden of holding their sins against them. But if it's someone you know, who, who you, you, in prudence, cannot or should not have contact with, even though you do not reconcile, you know, I mean, all you are required is to forgive from your heart. And should you, uh, you know, have contact or needed contact with these people, be civil, right? 
but you don't have to, to um, I, I guess I, the way I should say is that um, forgiveness is not a feeling. It's an act of the will. You choose to forgive. And when you forgive, and so that doesn't mean that you suddenly like the person, you know, which is probably outside of your uh, ability to control, but you can will the good. You can uh, relieve yourself of the burden of holding their sins against them. Also, when you're talking about love of enemies, that's the duty not just of individuals, but of entire kingdoms, of nations. You know, uh, they shouldn't go to war except for a, a just reason, except as a last resort uh, to to defend themselves, uh, to to defend their rights or the rights of some weaker nation, right? War may never legitimately be waged for motives of revenge. Not only that, but while, while war is sometimes just, sometimes necessary, while uh, soldiers sometimes make great sacrifices, cruelty in war is also sinful. And this was hammered out way back in the Middle Ages, in the, in the time of chivalry, that you, that you uh, do not treat um, the, the, the wounded or the disabled uh, brutally, that you offer mercy, that uh, uh, you don't attack non-combatants, for example. Um, these are some practical ways of loving our enemies, of respecting their rights. Um, and this, is, this little list is, is number six, by the way, so we made it through it. Uh, practical ways to love our enemies, respect their rights, avoid uncharitable thoughts and words about them. Okay, Note to self, stop throwing the uh, Pope under the bus. Number three, show good manners towards them and do them a good turn when possible. These are just like general guidelines of how to to love your enemies. And we should be careful not to form a habit of fault-finding or backbiting, no matter how much provocation we have. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, See to it that no one renders evil for evil to any man, but always strive after good towards one another and towards all men. And that's no nonsense. Hey, thanks for being with us today. If you want to support this apostolate, you can go to vmpr.org, click on the Donate Now button, find out how to make a one-time donation or to be a monthly donor. Also, we have a whole uh, library that we're building up of uh, of, uh, Catholic audio and video, and you can go to catholicrc.org and order those things and, and help support this uh, ministry, this apostolate, in the process. So, uh, also, this January, uh, upcoming, go to vmpr.org for all the details. Father Rippinger and uh, the guys from Liber Christo are going to be at our annual Spiritual Warfare Conference. Don't miss it. Find out how to register today. And God bless.